You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Sovereign Lord, we praise you for moving the hearts of pagan kings and sinful men, that you might keep your promise, redeem your people, and glorify your name in Jesus. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, I travelled to Europe for the very first time. And can I say, it was absolutely amazing. Every moment of it, from the time our plane landed in Berlin, to buying pastries in Strasbourg and walking the streets of Geneva. The experience of being so far from home was absolutely surreal. But you know what? As ordinary as it sounds, let me tell you, every time I travel, every time without fail, nothing beats the feeling of coming home. I could have been in France, Japan, South Korea, but there is nothing quite like that moment when the plane lands and you hear your captain say, welcome home. There's something special about coming home, isn't there? The Pakistani human rights activist Malala Yousafzai says, if you go anywhere, even paradise, you will miss your home. Now the American poet Maya Angelou writes, the ache for home lives in all of us. It's so true, isn't it? I don't know where you might call home. Could be KL, it could be Singapore, it could be Brisbane or Sydney, or if you're like me, there's no place quite like Melbourne, is there? Wherever it may be, as long as we're away from home, know that ache for home lives in all of us. And if that's true, as I suggest that it is, just imagine then how deeply Judah must feel an ache for home. Last week, we found Judah locked out in Babylon. And the prophet Jeremiah declares, guess what? You're going to stay in exile for another 70 years. But in the end, God will bring you home. And that's exactly what happens. Over the next 50 years, Babylon falls, Persia rises. But all that time, Judah remains in exile. You see, their captors, their oppressors, It might have changed from Babylon to Persia, but their situation hasn't changed one bit. Year after year after year, Judah longs for the day when God will come and bring his people home. Their hearts ache to be back in Jerusalem. And then one day, in 536 BC, 50 years after Jeremiah speaks, 60 years after they first go into exile, God comes knocking. In Ezra chapter 1, God comes good on his promise. He brings his people out of exile and back to Jerusalem. And in the most amazing of ways, he satisfies their ache for home. So today in verses 1 to 4, we're going to see a surprising proclamation. And then in verses 5 to 11, a radical restoration. And I'll tell you what, through it all, we will not be able to escape the sovereignty of our God. Act 10, return. 
Let's look at part one together, verses one to four, a surprising proclamation. Uh, have you ever had that experience of hearing good news from a bad person? Good news from a bad person. Now, confession time, I remember some time ago, there was someone I found just really irritating. It was almost as if everything they said was calculated just to annoy me. Now, I've repented of that sin, we get along wonderfully now, but I remember one day this guy came up to me and he said something remarkably kind. I mean, it was so surprising, I, I kind of didn't know how to respond. If you're the political type, I know that some of you are, it's that moment when a politician you can't stand makes a decision you can't fault. It's awkward, isn't it? Awfully frustrating. You might not be a fan of Donald Trump. And if you're not, it's that moment that he signs an executive order to not build a wall, but to combat child exploitation. And you're like, oh man, like what do I do with that? It's just so surprising. Well, here in Ezra chapter 1, we have a king, King Cyrus, and he signs an executive order that's so surprising we just don't quite know how to respond. He issues a proclamation that the people of God, that the people of Judah, should go home and rebuild their city. And there are three surprises that we find in this proclamation. Three surprises, here they are. The first surprise is this. Cyrus is blessing Judah. Cyrus is blessing Judah. God's enemy is blessing God's people. Now, we need to pause and understand what's going on here. If you rewind back to 597 BC, Babylon, they dragged Judah into exile. Babylon is the enemy. But over the coming decades, Persia rises and Babylon falls. And eventually, Persia becomes Judah's captors, their oppressors. Persia becomes their enemy. And here's the first surprise. God's enemy is blessing God's people. Just look at verse 3. Cyrus declares, Any of his people among you, may his God be with him. And may he go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord. I mean, the, the enemy of God is sending the people of God back to their home to build their city. And he's not sending them empty-handed. Look at verse 4. He's sending them home with silver, gold, goods, and livestock. I mean, this, this is insane. It's almost as if, just imagine, post-World War II Japan were to rebuild China and Korea and pay for it with all their money. It's just a bit surprising, isn't it? And here's the kicker. Look at verse 2. Cyrus calls Yahweh the God of the heavens. Well, here we have it. And we can't even make sense of this, can we? God's enemy isn't just blessing God's people. No, he's acknowledging that God is the king of the world. What in the world is going on? Well, here's the second surprise. Cyrus is actually using God. Cyrus is actually using God. I hate to say it, all of this is just one big political play. Cyrus is sending Judah back to Jerusalem, not to bless them, but to buy them off. He's claiming the support of their God to secure his status as their king. So notice what he says in verse 2, right? This is what Cyrus of Persia says. 
Yahweh, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Can you hear what Cyrus is saying? Now, it's not as if he actually worships God. It's not as if he actually believes it. No, he's using God's name for his own political gain. He's saying to Judah, your God is on my side. Now, some of you know that I'm a recovering political junkie. It's an illness, I know, and if you're a fellow sufferer out there, please get help. Uh, I know a lot of you guys have been watching Korean dramas to get through the last few weeks, but I've been spending much of this week watching, surprise, surprise, the Democratic National Convention. I know a lot of you are going to sleep the moment you hear that, but it's that big event in America where the Democrats officially nominate their presidential candidate. Now, aside from that convention, here's what I find fascinating about American politics. Every presidential candidate, without fail, feels the need to mention that they have a personal faith in God. And they'll say it, right, without, without fail, even if they're not genuine believers. They'll fake it. Why? Because they're pretending to use religion to legitimize their campaign. They're saying, your God is on my side. It's pretty much what King Cyrus is doing. And when we realize that this proclamation, it doesn't sound so flash anymore, does it? But we realize he's sending Judah home, not out of the kindness of his heart, now he's doing it to buy off their loyalty. And so when we read this proclamation, Judah might be going home, but let's face it, they're still being ruled by a pagan king. They're still being played. But that's where the third surprise just brings it home. Because notice this. You see, Cyrus thinks he's using God, but actually God is playing Cyrus. This is like the best political drama you could ever imagine. Cyrus thinks he's stitched up God, but look at verse 1. Yahweh roused the spirit of King Cyrus. You can imagine it, can't you? King Cyrus sitting on his throne wondering, I wonder what's a great idea. You know what? I'll buy Judah off by sending them home and giving them all that they want. That way, it'll secure my throne. But who put that idea in his mind in the first place? God did. Well, who's playing who now? You see, Cyrus thinks he's using God for his own glory, but in fact, God is using Cyrus for his. Cyrus thinks that he's the king, where in fact, God is the king over every king. I mean, the irony is striking, isn't it? In verse 2, Cyrus calls Yahweh the God of the heavens. But he says that, purely for political gain. And yet, in those very words, he's actually acknowledging that God is the king over every king. Friends, the kings of this world are puppets in the hands of a sovereign God. And however powerful they might be, I'll tell you what, God plays them all in the palm of his hand. He rules this world to keep his promise and to redeem his people. I mean, that's what we see right there in verse 1, isn't it? Cyrus issues this proclamation in order to fulfill the word of Yahweh spoken through Jeremiah. That certainly isn't Cyrus's plan. 
but it is God's. Friends, can you see what's going on here? God is ruling our world to bring his people home. And no king, no kingdom, no nation, no power, no ruler, no force of nature can stand against him. It's not simply that God saves us in spite of evil. No, that would almost be too easy. He's sovereign, so sovereign, that he even saves us through the kings of this world. I mean, it's what he achieves in the death of Jesus, isn't it? In that moment, it looks like the forces of evil have destroyed Jesus. But actually, in his death, Jesus destroys the forces of evil. The devil thinks he's defeated God at the cross, but at the cross, God defeats the devil. Not even the death of God can stop the plans of God or can stop God himself. In fact, God uses the death of his son to achieve the redemption of his people. God rules over every part of our world. He rules even through the pagan kings of this world so that he might keep his promise, so that he might redeem his people, so that he might bring us home. You know, it's easy to think, isn't it, that we live at the mercy of the kings of our world. To think that our fate, well, it's decided by everyone else. So our freedoms, well, we're locked down by our government. Our long days, they're dictated by our bosses and employers. And our choices are constrained by our circumstances. And you've got to think, that's, well, that's got to be what Judah must have felt, right? Their fate was always decided by someone else, by the king of Babylon, by the prince of Persia. Now, Judah lives, it seems, at the mercy of the kings of this world. And you can imagine how it feels. It can feel like God has checked out of history, that God has checked out of this world that God has checked out of our lives. It can feel like the author of our story is no longer God, but Cyrus or our government or our employer or our circumstances or all the kings of this world. But God wants Judah to realize, he wants you and me to realize that he is always ruling our world. He is always writing our story. He wants us to realize that there is no king over him. You know, in this passage, we see that God is using every power, both the friendlies and the hostiles, to bring his people home. So, sometimes we think, don't we, that life is a bit like the world versus God. The world over here and God over here. So a pandemic strikes, we lose our job, our relationships fall apart, and what do we think? World one. God zero. Or we think that God is sovereign over our salvation, but but not our work or our world. So we think that God is king over our home or our church or our lives, but actually what happens at work, well, it feels like it's in another kingdom altogether. As if our employers were to say to God, you have no power here, Jesus the Christ. But that's not the case. Our life is not the world versus God. Our life is the world under God. God rules as a king over our whole world. He's actively involved in every moment of every day in every place. 
You and I need to know in the marrow of our bones that there is not a moment in our lives, not an event in history, not a decision of man, nor a force of nature that can take place outside the sovereign rule of God as our King. We look at the disastrous circumstances of our world and we think, surely God must just be permitting this or tolerating it. No, God is actively using all things to bring his people home. He is so sovereign that he even works in the hearts of pagan kings to keep his promise and redeem his people. And you guys got to know this, the knowledge that God works through absolutely everything actually fills every moment of our lives with meaning, doesn't it? It injects purpose into absolutely every moment of every day. I mean, if you're not a Christian, I wonder, What meaning and purpose do you find in a world that is struck by a pandemic? In nations that are ruled by violence? It's hard to find meaning and purpose in that, isn't it? But the wondrous joys of following Jesus is that we can look at the worst of circumstances and ask ourselves, I wonder what God is doing. I wonder how he's working. And we might find ourselves just a little surprised at how he's working, or maybe even who he's working through. Let me tell you about how my friend Peter came to faith in Jesus. When Peter was in primary school, he had a teacher who he really didn't like. Now, his teacher wasn't a Christian, but his teacher's dad was. And whenever his teacher would speak about his Christian father, Peter thought to himself, whatever he has, I want. So Peter went home, told his dad, I want to go to church. And he did. Shortly after, he heard the gospel and came to faith in Jesus. Absolutely remarkable when you think about it, isn't it? But I don't think for a moment that Peter's teacher intended to evangelize him with the gospel. But in God's sovereignty, he did. Just think about how amazing and remarkable that is. The faith of the father is mediated through his unbelieving son to save a student he never met. In a place as ordinary as a primary school classroom, God works through an unwitting teacher to bring Peter Amazing. Even when we don't know how God is working, even when we don't know through whom God is working, fellow Christian, we can always know that God is working in good and bad, in victory and defeat. God is ruling this world to fulfill his promise, to redeem his people. He is ruling this world and every king to bring his people home. And sometimes it's in the most surprising of ways. Well, we've seen God's sovereignty in a surprising proclamation. And now we're going to see it in a radical restoration. And this restoration is so radical in three different ways. Number one, firstly, God guarantees their restoration. God guarantees their restoration. Now, it's absolutely crazy when you think about it, but not all the exiles actually wanted to go home. Uh, Mary Angelou writes the ache 
for home lives in all of us? Well, apparently, it doesn't live in all of the exiles. You see, over 60 to 70 years in Babylon, it's almost as if they've become institutionalized. Do you remember? Jeremiah called them in exile, live in the city of man, but live as the city of God. But I guess after half a century, many of these exiles were living in the city of man and as the city of man. It's as if they're just assimilated to Babylon and the world around them. It's really sad when you think about it. I mean, their exile was their judgment against their sin against God. And now God offers them forgiveness and freedom, but then choose rather to continue in judgment. If you've seen the Shawshank Redemption, you might remember that inmate called Brooks Halton. Uh, Brooksy, as he was called, was incarcerated from 1905 to 1955. That's 50 years behind bars. Eventually, Brooksy's released from prison. But it's sad because he just can't survive life on the outside. And in the end, he commits suicide. It's sad because Brooks would actually rather live in prison than in freedom. You see, that describes something of Judah's situation, a spiritual Stockholm syndrome. They resist their restoration. They refuse to answer the proclamation. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's easy to think of God a bit like a salesman who's offering a product and then is just standing around in the middle of shopping town waiting for someone to take him up on his offer. So we think, oh, well, I guess Jesus dies on the cross to win our salvation, to make it possible. But now he's just kind of left hanging on the cross, praying and hoping that someone will take him up on the offer. And it's all quite sad I guess, because Judah won't answer God's proclamation. It feels like a salvation half done. But you see, Jesus isn't a salesman who offers a product that we might not accept. No, God doesn't just make the offer. He guarantees the response. And thank God that not even my stubborn heart can subvert his sovereign power. Look at what happens in verse 5. So the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priests and Levites, and here it is, everyone whose spirit God had roused, prepared to go up and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. Do you see, friends, the very God who moves the heart of a pagan king is the same God who moves the heart of a stubborn people. God is so sovereign that he doesn't just rule this world. He rules our hearts. That's the extent of his sovereign power. Here's the reality, right? In our natural condition, we would hear that surprising proclamation of the gospel, but words of life would fall on hearts of stone. See, we are so institutionalized in our sin that the gospel would just ring hollow in our hearts. The truth is we need to not just hear a surprising proclamation No, we need to experience a radical restoration. And that's exactly what God does in his sovereign care. He sends his Holy Spirit who works in our hearts, who creates a conviction where none previously existed, 
who lights a fire of desire in our spirits, who turns our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He enables our repentance. He gives us faith. The sovereign God saves us from beginning to end, and no pagan king, no stubborn heart can ever subvert his power. I mean, that reality, it should drive us to our knees in prayer, shouldn't it? Because the only way that our friends will ever turn to the Lord Jesus Christ is if God rouses their spirit, just like he does here in verse 5. See, we could speak that surprising proclamation of the gospel over and over and over again. But if God does not change people's hearts, they will never respond in faith. You see, if we only proclaim the gospel but never pray to our God, then we have grasped only half the equation. Because God works through proclamation and prayer to bring his people home. God, I don't know if you've realized, demands a response to his news. He demands a response to his proclamation. And you may have grown up in church your whole life and heard this gospel week after week after week. But for years it's meant little, if anything, to you at all. Let me ask, for all the times that you've heard it, have you ever answered it? For all the times you've heard the gospel, have you ever responded to it? You see, I wonder whether all that's left for you to do is to say yes to God. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're with us. I hope you realize that the gospel, that what we're on about here when we talk about Jesus, it's not just good news to hear and then ignore. It's not a you do you or whatever works for your life. No, this is a proclamation that demands an answer. So I'm asking you, please don't ignore this message. Answer the call. Respond to God. And I pray that the Holy Spirit might be rousing the spirits of some people even right here, right now. Secondly, this restoration is so radical because God supplies it. Just look at verse 6. All their neighbors supported them uh, with silver articles, gold, goods, livestock, and valuables, in addition to all that was given as a free will offering. Can you see what's going on here? This is a second Exodus. It's redemption all over again. Uh, back in Exodus 12, God delivered Israel out of Egypt. And what did he do? He gave them such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested in this way. They plundered Egypt. God did it then. And can you see, God's doing it all over again. He's restoring Israel to everything that it was saved to be. And he's enlisting the nations to bankroll this project. Once again, God in his sovereign power is using the nations to serve his people. And one day, the kings of this earth will cast their crowns before the king of glory and all the nations which oppose him now will worship him then. It's kind of funny, isn't it? I mean, we fear the kings of this earth, presidents and prime ministers, partners and executives, parents and in-laws, but in the end, all of them, all of us, will bow before the king of glory. 
And that leads us to the third and final reason this restoration is so radical. It's because God is glorified in it. God is glorified in it. I have a confession to make. Uh, I actually like the classic Aussie movie, The Castle. Some of you might have seen it before. It's that movie with Dale, uh, Dale Kerrigan who keeps all his trophies in the pool room. So whenever he finds something that he treasures, what does he say? Let's go straight to the pool room. Well, just imagine if someone raided that pool room. Just imagine if they stole his trophies. If they took those trophies and then put them in a pool room of their own. It's not just theft, is it? It's humiliation. It's not just a matter of property. No, it's a matter of glory. It'd be like a footy team stealing last year's Premiership Cup from Richmond and then putting it in their own locker room. It's utter humiliation. There's my one sports illustration for the whole year for you. You see, when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem back in 587, King Nebuchadnezzar, he raided their pool room. He took the articles of the Lord's house and put them in the house of his gods. Utter humiliation. It's as if Nebuchadnezzar was mocking Judah saying, I own your God. But here in verses 7 to 11, Cyrus is returning the articles to Jerusalem. He's returning the trophies to the pool room, as it were. And even though he doesn't mean to do this, he's actually restoring the honor and glory of God. You see, Cyrus thinks he's using God for his own glory. But in reality, God is playing Cyrus for his. Friends, God is ruling this whole world to keep his promise to redeem his people and to glorify his holy name. And God is most glorified in the redemption of his people. And it's at the cross that we see the ultimate redemption of God's people and the ultimate display of God's glory. For there at the cross, he played the kings of this world. You see, when they were placing a crown of thorns on Jesus' head, They thought they were mocking a humiliated man. But what they didn't realize was that they were crowning the king of glory. Friends, God is ruling this world. He's even ruling this world through pagan kings, all to keep his promise, to redeem his people and to glorify himself. You know, if the ache for home lives in all of us, then there can be nothing more distressing than not being able to go home. Just the other day, I read a story of a 10-year-old girl who was stranded in Egypt and unable to go to her new home in the United States. Her name is Ragat Saleh. Ragat Saleh was born in war-torn Yemen, and her father had gone ahead of the family to start a new life in San Francisco. At long last... The day came for his wife and children, including Ragat, to travel travel from Yemen to the U.S. But while the family was transiting through Egypt, the U.S. administration issued a ban on all future immigrant visas. And so, for a variety of reasons, Ragat had to stay in Egypt while her mom and her brothers and sisters traveled on to the United States. For over a month, this young Yemeni girl was stranded in Egypt all alone with no way to her new home. Eventually, 
After the advocacy of various community groups and extensive media coverage, the US administration buckled and issued her a visa. And thank God, at 8.30pm on August 13th, Ragat finally touched down in San Francisco. But I'll tell you what, it took a colossal effort to get her there. It took a mammoth effort to bring her to her new home. Friends, God is on a mission to bring his people home. And he will do anything and everything to accomplish that mission. Nothing will stand in his way. Not the wealth of nations, nor the power of kings, nor even the heart of sinful men. No, the sovereign Lord of this universe. He rules over every moment of history to keep his promise, to redeem his people, and to glorify his name. Thank God he will do anything and everything. He will do whatever it takes to make sure that he brings you and me home to him. And we may not know how, in every case, exactly he is working. But be assured of this, and be in no doubt of this one reality. God is always at work. God will never fail. Act 10. Return. Sovereign Lord, we praise you for moving the hearts of pagan kings and sinful men, that you might keep your promise, redeem your people, and glorify your name in Jesus. Amen.